0: It took place on July the 16th, 1945 at the Alamogordo Air Base in the deserts of New Mexico. It was the world's first detonation of an atomic bomb. The explosion produced the now-famous mushroom cloud and fireball that covered an area approximately four square miles. The blast was equivalent to 20 kilotons of TNT, The temperature at the site in the moment after the blast was three times hotter than the sun. The bomb vaporized the steel tower on which it was mounted. Sixteen years later, the desert floor was still emitting radioactivity. Today, Alamogordo Air Base is a state park. It's a memorial to the men and to the technology that launched America and the world into the nuclear age. But what struck me about the project was its code name. Its nickname was the Gadget, quite a nickname for atomic bomb, the Gadget. But its code name was coined by the lead physicist on the project, J. Robert Oppenheimer. The code name was Trinity. It's ironic, he named a powerful fireball after God. Oppenheimer must have been reading Ezekiel chapter 1. For long before the atomic era, the Hebrew prophet had a vision of an enormous fireball. It was God's throne chariot. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Ezekiel saw a heavenly brush fire coming out of the north from the direction of heaven. A whirlwind was blowing. A fire was burning. It was a blazing inferno. And out of it came angels, cherubim. And besides the angels were wheels within wheels. God's throne moved on angels' wings. When the wings stopped, it killed the engine. God's throne is a chariot that cruises across the heavens on angel power. At the time, the Jews were being punished for their rebellion. They had been conquered by the Babylonians, and they had been taken to a foreign land, the land of Babel, to live in exile. It was a dark day when Ezekiel saw this vision, this brilliant light. He saw God's glory, but rather than vaporize him, it sanitized him, and it tenderized his heart and prepared him to be a prophet. In chapter 1, Ezekiel sees a vision of God. Now... In chapter 2, he hears the voice of God. Verse 1, And he, that is God, said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. His vision of God's glory had humbled Ezekiel. Remember in chapter 1, verse 28, he fell on his face before the Lord after seeing this fireball, this glorious chariot. But now the Holy Spirit picks him up and sobers him up and strengthens his knees and begins to speak to him God's instructions. You know, Ironically, in charismatic circles today, supposedly the Holy Spirit knocks a person to the ground. Then they're raised to their feet by human hands. That's not what happens to Ezekiel. It's the other way around. Here a man falls to his face, and the Spirit of God lifts him up. It's when we humble ourselves before God that the Holy Spirit gives us strength and raises us up. Verse 3, and he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me, They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And here God calls the Jewish people a rebellious nation. But it's not the Hebrew word usually used for the nation Israel. When he says nation, it's the word goi or goyim, which is Gentile. It's God's way of saying of his own people that they've acted like pagan Gentiles like a nation who never knew me, not the privileged people that God had made them to be. He says, you've acted like Gentiles, like people who don't know me, for they are impotent and stubborn children, literally stiff-necked and hard-hearted. They were like stubborn kids. Harry Randall Truman was 83 years old living in a cabin a mile from Mount St. Helens in Washington State. For weeks, officials told him and his neighbors to evacuate. Old Harry, though, was quoted as saying, You're all acting like wimps. That mountain ain't going to hurt me, boy. In the end, Harry was one of 57 people who died in the most destructive volcano blast in U.S. history. Harry's body was covered by 800-degree liquid rock and 1,000-pound boulders. But it wasn't really the mountain that killed Harry. Harry died of stubbornness. And the Jewish people were just as stubborn, just as stiff-necked as Harry Randall Truman. God calls them an impudent and stubborn children. God had sounded the alarm Through Jeremiah, the Babylonians would blow the top off their peace and quiet, but they refused to listen. They were sure that God was wrong and they were right. They stiffened their neck. They hardened their hearts. God's only choice was to break them. Beware. God's cure for a stiff neck, God's cure for a broken heart, is either our brokenness or our humility. Hey, we can humble ourselves, we can bow our head and bend our knees, or God will do it for us. He'll bend our neck and He'll break our hearts. But now in light of the Jewish stubbornness, God has a mission for Ezekiel. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. He's going to need the Holy Spirit to lift him up and to make him strong. For Ezekiel is being assigned a tough job. He's being sent to minister to a difficult people. Here's the good news, though. God doesn't always call the equipped, but he does equip the called. If God calls you to a task, you can be sure that he is going to help you perform it. He's going to give you the power that you need. And Ezekiel will deliver God's word to God's people God will give this prophet, as he gives pastors today, different messages at different times. But the godly man always speaks out, thus says the Lord God. Ezekiel is to declare God's word regardless of its reception. Notice, he says, as for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, we might wonder why God would waste such a skilled and anointed and courageous man like Ezekiel on a people who he knew may never listen to him in the first place. It seems like an inefficient use of manpower. Why not send your less able spokesman to these people? If the Jews are going to reject the message anyway, why waste your best and brightest on them? But God sees situations and he passes out assignments differently than we would. He sends the less able spokesman to the soft-hearted people who are ready to repent and receive God's message of hope. You remember Jonah? Talk about a poor witness. Jonah was a sorry spokesman for God. First, he ran from God's calling. Then he despised the people God sent him to reach. He gave a very short message, a one-word sermon, repent. And when they repented, he sulked under a gourd that he'd been responsible for their salvation. God used Jonah in spite of him, not because of him. But here, God takes a dedicated man like Ezekiel and he deploys him to reach a rebellious people. An eager audience doesn't require a godly spokesperson, not as much as a stubborn crowd does. You see, he needed a man with backbone to go to these hard-hearted people. God wanted to ensure that on the day of judgment, no one could say, hey, God was unfair to us. God didn't warn us. No, God sends Ezekiel to the Jews so that they will have to admit, as he says here, a prophet was among us. This is not how we generally think, but realize even though your witness to a person you love may not bring that person's salvation, bring bring it about, it may accomplish an even greater goal of ensuring God's vindication. For in the end, your ministry might silence the sinner. It might glorify God. It might shut them up and they'll have to say, A prophet was among us. Verse 6, And you, son of man. And we'll find this to be a familiar phrase in Ezekiel. It's used 94 times. And it was a way of emphasizing his humanity. Ezekiel was a servant of God. He was a spokesman for God. But he was still a son of man. And you might recognize that son of man is the title the gospel writers give to Jesus. It's used 89 times in the Gospels, and it's used for the same purpose, the same reason, to emphasize Jesus' humanity. He was God, but he was also a son of man. Now God tells him, And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, Do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Briars are painful, thorns are troublesome, scorpions sting, and all the above is in Ezekiel's future. If not literally, then certainly metaphorically. But Ezekiel can't back down. He'll be threatened by words and by looks. And having received a fair share of each, I'm not sure which is worse. A word stings, but sometimes a look can kill. I'll never forget the lady. She was sitting right back over there in the old building who stared a hole in me the whole service. Man, she just stared at me. She had the most wicked look you can imagine. If looks could kill, this gal would have been in my assassin. I preached my way through her whole assault. Only to find out later that morning she had given her life to the Lord. I was so glad that I wasn't dismayed by her looks. Ezekiel knows you can be intimidated by words or by looks. He needs to to buck up against both. He says in verse 7, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. You see, God is instructing Ezekiel from the outset of his ministry not to measure his success by tangible results. Ezekiel, don't give up. Don't get down for lack of results. For whether the Jews hear or reject, you are to be faithful. When William Carey started talking about going to India as a missionary, his dad pointed out his lack of academic training. But William responded, I can plod. I can plod. Plodding through the muck and mire, picking up one foot and putting in front of the other and then doing it again and again and again. That is ministry's most vital qualification. Faithfulness, plodding, refusing to give up. Endurance is the indispensable tool of a minister for God. It's been said, a determined soul will do more with a rusty monkey wrench than a loafer will accomplish with all the tools of a machine shop. Determination and desire are more important than degrees and diplomas. A plotter will go further than a prancer. We need pastors and church leaders to be determined souls. Well, verse 8 tells us, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mourning. And woe. To my knowledge, there's only one other scroll in Scripture written on the front and the back, and that is the scroll that appears in Revelation chapter 5, which was sealed with seven seals. That particular scroll we know was the title deed to the universe, and John discovered that only one person was worthy to open that scroll and to break the seals and to take possession of the universe, and that person was Jesus. But you remember in Revelation, breaking the seals is painful. And with each one of those seals, when the seals pop, when the seals are broken, another judgment is poured out on this wicked world. Here Ezekiel sees something similar. He sees the scroll on which was written, Lamentations and Mourning and Woe. Chapter 3 continues, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. I bet it tasted a little papery. If he'd put a little jelly on it, it would have been a jelly scroll. I'm sure he asked for some butter on his scroll, of course. Actually, the idea of eating the scroll was idiomatic. The phrase was a metaphor for digesting it, you know, applying it, appropriating it to one's life. And then he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. He liked God's word. It was sweet to his taste. And this is the key to understanding your Bible. Realize, it's been said, man's knowledge must be understood to be loved, but God's knowledge must be loved to be understood. You see, it's when you love God, and it's when you really want to know Him, that's when the Scriptures suddenly begin to open up to you. That's when things are revealed. That's when it becomes sweet. If you don't have that love for God and that desire for Him, then it really does taste papery. In Revelation chapter 10, the apostle John also ate the scroll. He said, It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. It was sweet in his mouth, but it was bitter in his belly. You see, as John considered God's kingdom coming to earth, what was involved in Jesus returning to earth and taking possession of the planet? As he was considering this, at first it excited him. Oh, how sweet! When God rules and reigns, life will taste better. Life will taste sweet. But when John began to digest the implications of God's kingdom on the world around him, it left him with a bitter taste. For he knew there would be people he loved, who because of their sin, because of their rebellion, without Christ, they would be judged. They would be cast into the flames of hell. And this caused John a bitterness in his belly. Caused him some real heartburn, as it should us when we make the same considerations. You see, this is why the Bible's message can be described as sweet and sour. It's a sweet and sour book. On the one hand, it thrills us to realize our blessings that are ours in Christ. But it chills us to understand the judgments that are coming on those who are apart from Christ. Also, pay close attention here to this concept of eating and digesting the Word of God. You remember what Jeremiah said, chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Jeremiah had scarfed up the Scriptures. He had digested it. He had eaten it. And it had satisfied his deepest needs. The other day, we took the grandkids over to Five Guys. And I watched my grandsons do what their dad did when he was the same age. We fed him the french fries, you know, and they'd take and they'd dip the french fries into ketchup. And then they would lick the ketchup off the french fries without really eating the fries. This is what a lot of people do with God's Word. Oh, they like the sweet, just not the meat. They want to take the sweet stuff off. But they don't want to taste the whole thing. They don't want to apply it to their lives. They don't want it to shake them and make them into what God wants them to be. Hey, The Bible deserves a more, more than a casual reading, more than a superficial treatment. We need to bite into it and chew on it and mull it over and over and savor it and digest its message. And then verse 4, then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. Now, again, you would assume that if God had sent Ezekiel to a foreign land and a pagan people rather than to Israel, that that would have been a harder assignment. He would have had to buy one of those Rosetta Stone courses and learn a foreign language. But no, God sent Ezekiel to his own people, to the Jews. And yet this turned out to be a tougher task. A foreign people, having spent years in spiritual darkness, would have been happy to hear and heed the message. But the Jews had already heard it all. They'd heard it so many times, they'd become immune to the message. They thought they were okay since they were God's people. And you know, the same is true for us. We think missionaries who leave the comfort and conveniences of America for a third world country have it hard. Hey, but the folks that God sends them to reach, they're hungry for the gospel. They're ready to receive. While you and I have been called to reach the savages next door. And you see, the problem with many Southerners is that they, like the Jews, have heard it all before. They think that just because they made some nominal commitment in the past, they walked a church aisle, they think they're okay now. That couldn't be further from the truth. You see, a missionary is not necessarily a person who crosses the ocean, but it's a person who's willing to cross the street to share the gospel. Do we love the pagans at home? And then verse 7, But the house of Israel will not listen to, me, to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel was impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads, like adamant stone, literally like granite, harder than flint. I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. In essence, God is telling Ezekiel that he needs to be just as hard-headed as the Jews. You know, I believe there is such a thing as a sanctified stubbornness. Not all stubbornness is sin or detrimental. In fact, the right kind of stubbornness can be beneficial It's good to be stubborn for what's right. He's telling Ezekiel, you're going to go out and minister to a hard-headed people. Well, you've got to be pretty hard-headed yourself. You can't back down. You can't cower away at their looks or their words. You know, there's a biblical term that you can use to translate a sanctified stubbornness. We don't use this word very much anymore. It's kind of archaic, but it's a great word. I really like this word. It's the word steadfast. Are you steadfast? Are you consistent? Are you faithful? Are you committed? Do you stubbornly hold on to what is right? We all need to be steadfast. Especially in these days. Jesus told us in John chapter 16 verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation. Expect it. If you live for Jesus in this world The world will be your enemy. You'll be resisted. You'll be rejected. This means that if you're going to live for God, you can't be easily swayed. You need some godly stubbornness. In 1905, the University of Bern in Germany turned down a Ph.D. dissertation as irrelevant, even fanciful. It was submitted by a young physics student named Albert Einstein. Einstein had to learn early in his life to reject the rejection. In 1894, a teacher in Harrow, England, wrote on a 16-year-old's report card the comment, a conspicuous lack of success. The student was named Winston Churchill, who had to learn early in his life to reject the rejection. If you're going to live the Christian life, you also have to learn to reject The rejection. You will be rejected by this world. You have to keep your eyes on God and don't be intimidated by their looks and their laughs. Verse 10. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears and go. Get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them. Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. And I love this wording. If God calls you to a task, then as he told Ezekiel, go, get to it. That's what he said, go, get to the captives. Tell them what I've told you to say. Whether they hear or whether they refuse, it's your job to get to it. And then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard before me a great thunderous voice Blessed is the glory of the Lord from His place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another and the noise of the wheels beside them and a great thunderous noise. God's throne chariot is revving up. God's turned on the engine. It's firing up. It's getting ready for liftoff. And so the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. This was all in a vision, we know, but it seemed so real to Ezekiel. He was literally being lifted up and moved to the task that God had given him. But he was still troubled. He still felt bitter. There was uh, heat. There was still, a, in the heat of my spirit, he says, the Lord's hand was strong upon me. Ezekiel was still troubled by the things that he had been told. He hadn't been given much hope that the people he was going to preach to would repent. And yet the Lord was strong upon me. You see, inwardly Ezekiel was struggling. but That didn't mean that God hadn't anointed him and wouldn't use him in powerful ways. I think this is something that we need to learn. We need to consider. This has often been the case with me. You know, we think that we need to resolve every issue that we struggle with before God begins to use us. That's not true. We think that all our ambiguities need to be resolved, all our questions need to be answered, all our inconsistencies need to be conquered before we begin to serve the Lord, before we're used by the Lord. But that's not true. Just because you have a bitter, sour taste for a time doesn't mean that the hand of the Lord isn't upon you doesn't mean it's not time for him to use you now. He'll resolve the issues. You'll spend a lifetime resolving the issues. But God wants to use you now. He's called you and he's equipped you you for his service. And so, then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv who dwelt by the river Chabar. And I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. This whole encounter with God, both the vision and now the voice, had wiped out Ezekiel for a whole week. He just sat down and was astonished for seven days. I'm sure he pondered all that he had seen, all that he had been told. He was taking it all in. His life would never be the same. Verse 16. And Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. (coughs) Now, in Ezekiel's day, urban life all went on within walled cities. All the ancient cities were surrounded and protected by stone walls. The walls served multiple purposes, They kept out wild animals and criminals. They protected against armies in times of war. They projected a city's status and prosperity. They even gave the inhabitants of the city a vantage point to see beyond their borders. Every city had watchmen that they posted along the tops of the walls. And it was from the towers, from the ramparts, that the watchman could keep an eye out for danger. He was the city's lookout. The watchman had visibility, and it was his visibility that created a responsibility for the folks inside the walls. And if that watchman was faithful to sound a warning the moment he saw danger, even if the townspeople refused to hear him, even if they didn't believe it, even if they just shined him on as an overreaction, then the watchman had done his job. The lookout wasn't responsible, wasn't accountable for the people's reaction. Only He was only responsible to sound the alarm. But if he became negligent, if he fell down on the job and refused to keep an eye out, or if he dozed off, or if he didn't bother to sound the trumpet and the city was attacked, then the bloodshed, the loss of life would be his responsibility. The blood would be on his hands. The lookout would be held accountable for the disaster. You know, go to Jerusalem today and you'll notice the Israeli soldiers stationed all along the tops of the walls, keeping watch over the city. But they're not always so vigilant. I've seen a few of these lookouts curled up with a newspaper or dozing off while supposedly being on guard. Not everyone is a poster boy for readiness. It's a good thing nothing happened. But this comes home to roost in the next few verses. Verse 18. For when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Ezekiel was a spiritual watchman. He was God's lookout on behalf of Judah. And the same rules applied to him as to the guy who literally sat on top of the wall. The prophet knew God and loved God. If he saw danger and didn't sound a warning, he was responsible for the consequences. The people's blood, so to speak. The condemnation of their souls would be upon Ezekiel's hands. Ezekiel was responsible for the outcome of their ignorance. Verse 19, yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, and you have delivered your soul. You see, once the watchman sounds the warning, then he's done his duty. His hands are now clean. It's up to the recipient of the message to take it to heart. As the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. We can preach and we can plead, but everyone's salvation is his own decision. And again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered but his blood I will require at, his hand, at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. In other words, the watchman has a responsibility to the wicked and to the righteous person. You see, it's our duty to call the wicked man to come to Jesus. And it's our duty to warn the righteous man lest he stumble. And the same principle applies. If the watchman is faithful to issue the warning, if he saves the person from danger, he saves his own soul from judgment. But if he fails to speak the warning, he puts himself and the people he's failed to warn in peril. His visibility creates a responsibility. Of course, Ezekiel and Israel are not the only people in this passage. For the principle that God is applying here to Ezekiel also applies to us and to the people within our walls. Who are the folks who live within your walls? I'm not talking about the whole world now. I'm talking about the people who live within your walls we're not responsible for the whole world, according to this passage, but we're responsible for the people who live within our walls. What are our walls? It's our sphere of influence. Who are the people that are within your sphere of influence, who you rub shoulders with, who are under your jurisdiction, so to speak? Certainly includes your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co workers. Your church, God has given to each of us a different sphere of influence. For some of us, our walls are broader than for others of us, but no man is an island. We all rub shoulders with other people, and I am responsible for the people over which I have a degree of influence. Each of us has a certain circle of contacts, and we're responsible for the spiritual awareness of those people. Understand, the visibility that we've been granted into the things of God, into the knowledge of His Word, create for us a responsibility. Visibility creates responsibility. You know the Lord. You know the Scriptures. God has entrusted His truth to you. People may think you're off the wall, but in reality, God has put you on the wall. You have a vantage point that others don't have. You are God's lookout. And as a lookout, you have a job to do. If you don't tell the people in your sphere of influence the truth, and they die and they go to hell, God will hold you responsible for not communicating with them the gospel. Christians often say, Well, I'm living the truth. I'm being a good example for Christ. People need to see that my faith, they need to see my faith without me having to tell them you know, why I believe. They need to see my faith, not just hear it. They want to to see what I'm living. I'm living it, man. I'm, I'm doing it. And hey, I agree. You do need to be a good example. But that's not enough. A watchman on the wall who saw danger on the horizon would have been negligent if he didn't sound an alarm. See, he needed to do more than just provide a good example. He needed to speak out. He needed to communicate. It is true. You can't, if you, you can't talk it convincingly if you don't walk it consistently. That's true. You've got to walk it before you talk it. But at the same point, if you never speak out, you haven't fulfilled your responsibility as a watchman. D.L. Moody once walked up to a man on the street and he asked him, he said, Sir, are you a Christian? The man snapped back, you need to mind your own business. To which Moody replied, Sir, this is my business. And the spiritual state of those under our influence is our business as well. And I believe the application here goes beyond just sharing the gospel. It's not enough just to see people saved. We also want to see them grow. If I'm learning and growing as a Christian, then I need to share those truths to help other people under my influence mature as well. There are dangers lurking outside the walls. That's why we need to sound the alarm for the safety and for the salvation of the folks around us. And then he says in verse 22, Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. And so I arose and went out into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And so just insert the whole vision he saw in chapter 1 again here in chapter 3. Ezekiel sees in the plain The same vision that he saw by the river. God's throne chariot revs up once more. And again, Ezekiel is confronted with God's glory. And he hits the deck. He falls prostrate on his face. You See, God's glory will appear over and over again in the book of Ezekiel. It seems that the man lived his life in God's glory. And this should be the goal of every Christian as well. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, describes the Christian life as a journey from glory to glory. That was Ezekiel's life. As we sense God's glory, His awareness around us, His work in our lives, as the Holy Spirit gives us glimpses into His glory, we are transformed into the image of our Lord. Literally, like Ezekiel, the Christian goes, From glory to glory to glory. Verse 24. Then the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. Again, the Holy Spirit is always setting us, putting us back on our feet. How often do we fall and the Spirit of God has to pick us up when we're down. He helps us stand again. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. He's the great picker-upper. And he spoke with me and said to me, Go shut yourself inside your house, and you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious house. Now throughout the Old Testament, one of the signs of God's judgment on a nation was the absence of a prophet from God, the lack of a prophetic voice. In other words, when God stopped talking to His people, they knew that they were in serious trouble. You know, sometimes a parent's scolding is nothing compared to a parent's silences. Quiet can speak louder than shouts. God is going to send the prophet Ezekiel among these people, and He is going to open His mouth to speak. But Ezekiel begins his ministry alone and silent. God ties him up with ropes. And then he makes him mute. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth as if he'd been eating peanut butter. And Ezekiel's silence is a sign to the Jewish people that they're in serious trouble. Where is God's prophet? How come we don't hear him speak? What is he doing locked up and mute You see, the ropes on Ezekiel and his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth is just the first of what will be scores of object lessons that Ezekiel will use to communicate to Israel. You recall that Jesus also spoke to the people in parables. Well, Ezekiel seemed to live a life that was a parable. He was constantly being told by God to act out a spiritual skit or an object lesson to teach the people God's truth. Ezekiel 24, verse 24, sums up the man's ministry. God says to the nation Israel, thus Ezekiel is assigned to you according to all that he has done. You see, God had spoken to the Jews by Jeremiah and by the other prophets through conventional means, and yet the people had rejected God's truths. Now he calls Ezekiel to speak, through unconventional means. I like to call Ezekiel the spiritual stuntman of the Bible. For as we'll see, God will call Ezekiel to do some wild, bizarre, strange things to convey his message to his people. Verse 27. But when I speak with them, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. As we've noted, we're accountable to deliver the message, but the response is not our responsibility. In conclusion tonight, let me ask you. Hey, let me ask you to ask God to show you what constitutes your walls. You're a watchman on the walls. What and who is living within your walls? Who lies within your sphere of influence? Have you spoken to them? Have you told them the truth about God and their sins? Perhaps God wants to expand your walls, maybe enlarge your circle. That's possible. Hey, maybe there's someone within your walls right now who's very obvious to you, even as I speak, yet you've missed them. You've yet to go to them. We're all lookouts. We're all God's watchmen on the walls. God laid all of China on the heart of Hudson Taylor. He laid the whole world on the heart of Billy Graham. He has laid our community on my heart. What has He laid on your heart? Who has He laid on your heart? Your neighbor next door? Maybe the guys at the gym? the parents on your kid's baseball team, the people you work with every day. When God shows you who is within your walls, then as he said to Ezekiel, go, get to it. Bow before his glory and he'll lift you up. He'll make you stand. He'll help you be the watchman and sound the alarm. Father, we thank you. for.